Today we enter Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We have covered a lot of ground in this epistle, and we still have a little bit of terrain to yet cover, but you will certainly note a transition from the first 11 chapters to these concluding chapters as Paul really shifts from explaining uh, the gospel to applying the gospel. Uh, to prepare us for Romans 12, I, I want to make a few introductory remarks, observations. Uh, the first is this, by way of question, um, trivia. Did you know, did you realize there are over 1,000 commandments in the New Testament? Most Christians don't realize that. There are over 1,000 imperatives in the New Testament. It's remarkable because we, we just don't think in terms of that number of commandments when we read the New Testament. It's equally remarkable because that far outnumbers the number of commandments in the Old Testament. Now, isn't that interesting? There are more imperatives in the New Testament directed to God's people than there are in the Old Testament. This false dichotomy of Old Testament law, New Testament grace, uh, that should rid us of it once and for all. Uh, that false dichotomy which plagues so many still in our day that these two are kind of antithetical, uh, working against one another, when in actual fact, when the gospel is rightly understood, the two are complementary. Uh, let me state it as follows. Uh, obedience is part of the gospel. Really? Obedience is part of the gospel. I'm not making that up. You've already found the book of Romans, right? Turn to chapter 1 and look at what Paul says in his introduction to this epistle. Verse 1, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. He describes it. He says it was promised beforehand in the Old Testament scriptures. It concerns God's son, the Lord Jesus. And then look at what he says in verse 5. Through whom, that is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now turn over to his conclusion, chapter 16, where he states in almost identical terms this reality that obedience is part of the gospel. Chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. Obedience of faith in the introduction. Obedience of faith in the conclusion. Let me restate my premise here. Obedience is part of the gospel. We can't get away from it. 
Let me break it into three statements for you. And I trust these, this will not muddy the waters, but will bring clarity. Here it is, summed up in three statements. And please hear me out all the way through. Do, don't get lost after I state this first one, please. Here it is. Obedience is necessary for salvation. Did you just hear what I said? How could I dare say that? Given the first 11 chapters of Paul's epistle to the Romans, how could I say that? I'm going to say it again. Obedience is absolutely necessary for salvation. Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Even Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, verse 6. God will render to each one according to his works. That tells me in very clear terms that obedience is necessary for salvation. Now, you haven't tuned out, right? Statement number two. Obedience isn't necessary, isn't necessary as the meritorious cause of salvation. It's nuanced, but did you get it? Obedience isn't necessary as the meritorious cause of salvation. And so you know those verses as well as I do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. Lest any man should boast. And so obedience isn't necessary as the meritorious cause of salvation. Here's the third statement I want you to get. Obedience is necessary as the demonstrable evidence of salvation. Obedience is absolutely necessary as the demonstrable evidence of salvation. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 2.14. He gave himself for us. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so obedience is necessary for salvation. Obedience isn't necessary as the meritorious cause of salvation. Obedience is absolutely necessary as the demonstrable evidence of salvation, the flower on the bush, picture it in your mind's eye, the grape on the vine, the leaf on the tree, none of them give life, but all of them prove life. Obedience is part of the gospel. Where there is faith in the Lord Jesus, where someone truly grasps, an individual grasps what it means, what it really means to be justified in God's sight by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there will be demonstrable evidence 
and that evidence will be obedience. It will be good works. That's why there are over a thousand commandments in the New Testament. Because obedience is part of the gospel. In Romans chapter 12, we have 40, almost 40 of those commandments. And so follow along now as I read this portion for us. Again, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And listen, please, for all of the imperatives. It's just rapid fire, one after another. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Almost 40 commandments. And it doesn't stop there. He adds to the list in chapter 13. He adds to the list in chapter 14. And he adds to the list into the first portion of chapter 15. The obedience of faith. Faith in action. The manifestation of a transformed life. Uh, what a disciple, a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ actually looks like. Commandment upon commandment, imperative upon imperative, and all of them, the long list of them, all the way through more or less to verse 12 of chapter 15, derive from or build upon what Paul says in the very first two verses. The first two verses of chapter 12 are foundational because in these two verses, Paul sets up two pillars and the rest of the commands simply build on, rest on these two pillars. 
These two pillars are formative, if you like. They're determinative. Everything that comes after these two pillars really exemplify or show what it means to obey the first two verses. So given their significance, I'm going to devote a sermon to verse 1 today. And you guessed it, a sermon to verse 2 next Lord's Day. And we're going to name this first pillar, verse 1, a living sacrifice. And we're going to label the second pillar, verse 2, a renewed mind. A living sacrifice, we need to be clear on what that is. A renewed mind, we must also be clear on what that is. And once these two pillars are firmly in place, we're ready for everything that follows in verse 3. Because the rest of the commandments are simply examples of what it means for us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. They're simply examples of what it means to be renewed in our minds. So pillar number one today, verse one, a living sacrifice. Listen again to what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Metaphorically speaking, you take your hammer and you hit this verse, it breaks into five pieces. It's what you get. You hit it hard enough, it breaks into five pieces. You understand each of those five pieces, grasp the significance of each of them, you put it all back together, and you've really got the gist of what Paul is getting at in this verse. So that's going to be my method this morning. I'm just going to hit it really hard. You're going to see it's going to break into five little pieces, parts, and then I'm going to apply each as I explain each. I'm going to make a pastoral observation. I think what I call a pastoral note in the sermon notes. A pastoral observation concerning each of these pieces as we seek to apply verse 1 to our own lives. And so here's the first piece I want you to notice. It's the word, therefore. Therefore. I, Paul is writing, appeal to you, the church at Rome, by extension us, the people of God. I appeal to you, therefore. You hear that word. What do you immediately think? Aha. There's a connection. There is a connection between what Paul is about to say and what Paul has already said. Therefore, he might be thinking back no farther than the last few verses in chapter 11 where he worships, right? We have that beautiful doxology, that celebration of the incomprehensible God, that exaltation over the sovereign God. And so he might be thinking no further back than that. Given who God is, therefore. He might be thinking of chapter 11 in its entirety, in which he has expounded this mystery, that the Gentiles are now implanted into the true Israel. A mystery not known in former ages, but now revealed through the apostles in God's holy word, God's holy scriptures. He might be thinking of that. Therefore, in light of that mystery... He might be thinking of chapters 9, 10, and 11 in their entirety, in which he has taken us by the hand and brought us into the depths, or rather the heights, if you like, of God's purpose of election. Well, if you really get that, therefore, 
Or, and I'm inclined to this, he's thinking all the way back to chapter 1, verse 16, where he first introduces this subject of the gospel, what it means for the just to live by faith. And from chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through to the end of chapter 11, he has expounded the gospel. I think that's the therefore in view. In other words, if you've got anything of the last year and a half, I don't know how long we've been at this now. I've even lost track. If you've got anything from the first 11 chapters, if you've been there and you have followed the Apostle Paul as he has systematically unpacked the gospel in all of those wondrous, beautiful truths, he now utters this word, therefore. He's making a connection, stating simply this, that as doctrine leads to doxology, Godward, worship, so too doctrine leads to discipleship, manward, that there is a connection between what we know and how we live. Here's the pastoral note. I've already, I just alluded to it, but here is the pastoral note in what I hope are clearer terms. Here's what I want you to get from this word, therefore. Truth has consequences. That's it. That is an extremely significant pastoral observation for me and for you. Truth has consequences. As Christians, we must, we must, we must Take this word, therefore, to heart. We really must. I mean, you think, think about just how, you, how we go through life, right? January, around the corner. And suppose one night, while we're fast asleep, um, ice storm hits. A couple of inches, freezing rain, and the roads are an absolute mess. Uh, what does it mean for you the next day? Either you stay home, off the roads... Or if you venture out, you do so very slowly, don't you, in your vehicle? You don't pull up here on the highway and get it up to 80 miles an hour without even thinking about it. You see, there is a therefore, without even really thinking it through. A therefore moment happens in your mind, doesn't it? Uh, this has just occurred. Therefore, this is what it will mean for me today, right? Hurricanes in the news the last couple of days. You imagine, I don't know, a hurricane, big storm, something's coming our way. They give us three days' notice. What do we do? Some of us leave. Some of us stay. But those who stay, maybe we put boards up at the windows, right? We buy a few groceries, a few extra cans of beans or something and some water. And we prepare ourselves for the storm. That is a therefore moment. This is about to happen. Therefore, I respond in kind. I don't know, another one that comes to mind. You have a peanut allergy. I feel sorry for peanut butter is one of my favorite things, but you have a peanut allergy. And you know you have a peanut allergy. What happens? You don't eat peanuts. It is a therefore moment. We can't get through life intact without therefore moments. How many of us in this room are trying to live the Christian life without therefore moments? Far too many of us. We never take the word therefore to heart. 
if this is really true, first 11 chapters, if this is who God really is, and if this is the gospel as Paul has explained it, and if this is the only worldview that makes sense, and if this is really what the future holds in store, therefore, what difference is it going to make? You get hit by a Mack truck, you're not the same person afterwards. My fear is this, far too many people get hit by the gospel, but it makes no difference. There's no therefore moments. There's no therefore application. This is true. I know it's true. I say it's true. Therefore, this is the only thing that makes sense for me to now live like this. That is Paul's point. That is the key of that word. And he said, you know, he had just gone into such detail, theological detail, explaining, explaining the truth. And now he completely shifts directions. Now that I have done that, now that you understand this, therefore, this is what these truths are going to look like in your life. If you get it, I'm tired of you saying you get it. If you really get it, therefore, this is what's going to take place. This is how you're going to live. You think of uh, Francis Schaeffer, that great statement, that great book, that great video series, that statement. He took it out of the book of Ezekiel. I think it's chapter 33. How shall we then live? You remember that one? It's out of the book of Ezekiel somewhere. How shall we live? Then, therefore, live. If this is really true, what's it going to look like? Truth has consequences. The second piece I want us to pick up and consider is this. The phrase, I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you. Oh, the pastoral tone. Paul laying his heart bare, if you like. I appeal to you. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. He doesn't just grab a big stick and start hitting them over the head or anything like that. No, no, it's a man speaking to a man. It's a believer speaking to a believer. But oh, his heart just flowing over here, flowing out of his love for them, his compassion and mercy toward them. Look, I, I want what is best for you. Reading between the lines. That's what he's saying. I want what's best for you. I want you to understand, as he's going to say later in verse 2, that, that I'm about to reveal, right at the end of verse 2, God's will. I'm about to, this is great, I'm about to reveal God's will for your life. Right now, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. He's about to reveal, do you understand this? Right now, Paul is revealing God's will for your life. Chapters 12. 13, 14, into the 15th chapter. And he knows this is good. He knows this is acceptable, satisfying. It brings blessedness. He knows that this is perfect. This is complete. And so he makes this appeal, this urging to give heed to what he is saying. Oh, the pastoral note is obvious. I've summed it up in the words of Psalm 119, verse 1. Here it is. Blessed. Oh, blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who walk in the law 
of the Lord. Paul knows, I pray we know, that God's will isn't arbitrary. That God's commandments aren't without purpose. They aren't without design. God has our blessedness in view. God has our contentment in view. God has our satisfaction in view. God has our good in view. And his commandments are designed for our good. His commandments and walking in his commandments alone is what leads to a blessed life. Oh, I appeal to you. I beg you. I plead with you, says the Apostle Paul. The third piece in this verse I want us to notice is this. By the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And so as I, I am about to issue a command, I'm about to give you an imperative. But I want you to set it in its context. And, and I want you just to be very clear, just be very clear in your mind's eye. Because I'm, I'm about to give you a tremendous commandment, Paul is saying. And yet I want it to be set in this context so that you understand where the motivation comes from to heed what I'm about to say. Here's where it comes from. The mercies of God. We usually use the word mercy, don't we? We speak of the mercy of God. In the original, the word is plural. He does say, by the mercies of God. And again, we know he has the first 11 chapters in mind. And so we know he is thinking of everything he has said to this point. He is thinking back to chapter 3, for example, beginning in verse 21, where he has described in such detail the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where he celebrated the fact that God himself put forward his son, put forth his son as a propitiation in his blood. Oh, the mercies of God. He's thinking of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We now stand in a position of grace. We are now accepted by this holy God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we now rejoice. We exult, says Paul there in the fifth chapter, in the hope of the glory of God. Well, you come to the best chapter in the Bible, right? You remember that one? Chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to celebrate what it means to be adopted into God's family. What it means to be foreknown, predestined, justified, and called justified and glorified. What it means to be in Christ to such a degree that there is now nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Oh, he has just celebrated time and time again in those first 11 chapters the mercies of God. And he is now issuing this urgent plea. Oh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Do you see God's mercies? Have you tasted of God's mercies? Are God's mercies what form and shape your worldview, your, your approach to life? Oh, the pastoral note is simple. The pastoral note is this. 
that in this single statement, singular statement, by the mercies of God, we find the greatest defense against what plagues far too many of us this very day, dare I say at this very moment, spiritual stagnation. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I won't be that bold. How many of you can only describe your current condition as that of spiritual stagnation? There you are. And there you've been for some time. Going through the motions. Uh, joy, peace, contentment, idealistic concepts, something perhaps you knew and had entered into at one time, but really right now, not the life you're living. Overcome, overrun with perhaps anxiety, dissatisfaction, discontentment, disillusionment, discouragement. Praying is a labor. Even coming here today and giving my attention and listening to God's word for 45 minutes, boy, it takes just about everything out of me. And actually, now that you just mentioned it, preacher, I did kind of check out 15 minutes ago, but I'm glad you just brought me back. Right? Spiritual stagnation. No growth. Not really going anywhere. Oh, here is a tremendous remedy. Let me sum it up in three statements. First is this. If this applies to you, let me speak to you as a pastor, as a brother in the Lord. Number one, you need to immerse yourself in God's mercy. You need to immerse, baptize yourself into God's mercy. You need to get back into chapter 3. You need to get back into chapter 5. You need to get back. Why did you ever leave chapter 8? You need to get back into chapter 8. And that must be your staple diet. It's where you have to live every day. Rehearsing those truths. Reminding yourself of those glorious truths. Reminding yourself of what it means to have God on your side in Christ Jesus. Rehearsing constantly what it means for the Son of God perfect being to assume humanity, take the form of a servant, submit himself as a servant to obey, even to the point of death for you, for me. Oh, how we need to warm our hearts daily in the mercies of God. Building on that, secondly, we must do this. You need to remind yourself of what God's mercy looks like in your life, because that's what's coming. Don't think of the rest of chapter 12, and don't think of these series of commandments detached from the gospel or detached from God's mercy. If we have tasted God's mercy, then all Paul is giving us in the rest of the chapter is what that taste looks like now in us. That's all he's doing here. It's cause and effect. By the mercies of God, if you get it, if you grasp it, if you're living in it day by day, week by week, if, if you're basking and reveling in it, then yes, a series of imperatives, commandments, what God's mercies now looks like in us, our lives. And my third exhortation, word of exhortation to you is this. Yes, immerse yourself in God's mercies. Yes, remind yourself of what God's mercies look like in life. And the number three, the most profound, here it is. Get busy. Yeah, that's it. Get busy. Here's a tremendously novel idea. 
which I remind myself of regularly. Are you ready for this? Stephen, actually act on what you know. I know it's just, isn't that just mind-boggling? I should package that up and sell it. Stephen, just act on what you know. I mean, it's a Nike commercial, isn't it? I hate to introduce Nike, but just do it. There is some application here. Just do it. You know it's true. The Word of God commands it. Here's just an absolutely novel, mind-boggling idea. Let's just actually try doing it then. Let's actually act upon it. Oh, a sure remedy for spiritual stagnation. I'll tell you right now, you don't need 15 counseling sessions. I don't have anything else to say. I really don't. You don't need to read three books on the subject. You don't need to watch an elaborate video series. I'll repeat it. Uh, get yourself into God's mercies. As Paul has revealed it in the first 11 chapters. Daily, you need to feed on it. Remind yourself, 12th chapter, 13th chapter, much later. 12th chapter will do for now. What God's mercies in life actually then look like. And the number three, get busy. Just put it into practice today. And then when you wake up tomorrow, guess what? Put it into practice again. Tuesday, put it into practice again. Applying Paul's exhortations in this chapter. Fourth piece is this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, here's the imperative, the commandment, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Notice three things. First of all, notice what we are to present, our bodies. I think Paul's intent is simply this, our entire selves, right? In totality, all that we are, our whole beings, body and soul. Uh, yes, our eyes and our mouths, the words we speak, the things we look at, the things we do, certainly, but also our thoughts, our affections, our desires, our dreams, our emotions, our worries, our cares, everything, every facet of our lives, our beings. That's what Paul has in view there with bodies. We're to present our bodies. Notice secondly as what? As a sacrifice. Now that's a little tricky until you get back into the Old Testament and just remember that there were two, I mean, there were a number of Levitical offerings, but two principal offerings in the Old Testament. The first was the sin offering. What was the sin offering all about? Shedding of blood, right? Confession of sin and forgiveness. It's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's redemption, the sin offering. But there was also in the Old Testament what is known as the burnt offering. It didn't have anything to do with sin. What was the purpose of a burnt offering? It was an expression of thanksgiving. It was a voluntary thing. The individual, the Jew, he could bring from his, 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 his herd or whatever, his flocks, his, his most valuable possession, animal. And he would bring it and he would offer it completely, totally upon the altar as an expression of thanksgiving. That too was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. His entire life, his entire ministry, his entire sojourn here on earth, earth he offered himself up willingly unreservedly, completely, totally. It's the burnt offering that's in view here in Romans 12, 1. That as an expression of thanksgiving, flowing from our comprehension of the mercies of God, Paul is commanding us to do what? Present our entire beings, our bodies, our entire selves as a sacrifice in totality, completely, 
offered up as a fragrant aroma upon the altar. Third thing I want you to notice is this, three marks of this sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were what? Dead. Similarly, we have died. We died to self in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the lives we now live, we live in Christ. It's a living sacrifice. Not only is it a living sacrifice, it's a holy sacrifice without spot, without blemish. We cleanse ourselves from our sins. Not only is it a holy sacrifice, it is an acceptable sacrifice. It is made acceptable as we offer it through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we respond to God's mercies toward us, and as we, we express our thanksgiving, our joy for what God has done for us in Christ, we give our complete selves to him. And this sacrifice is marked again by what? It's a living sacrifice lived out in Christ. It's a holy sacrifice whereby we put away sin in our lives. And it is an acceptable sacrifice, a fragrant aroma that arises and ascends to the very throne of God. Here's a pastoral note. Actually, I have four pastoral observations. Here they are quickly. Number one. Right here we see, and oh, I pray we get this. We see that we only begin to live when we die. We only begin to live when we die. The sacrifice dies. It's dead on the altar. This sacrifice is only living. Why? Because of our new life, our new identity in Christ. To present ourselves in totality as a sacrifice to God. In the very first instance, we don't go anywhere until we get this. It is to die to yourself. That is what it is. That's a hard pill to swallow. And that is a hard message to sell. Why? Because we live in a day and age in which we are bombarded with a singular message. Here it is. Personal gratification will make you happy. No, it will not. It will make you miserable. Personal gratification has never made anyone happy. We only really begin to live when we die to self. George Mueller penned these words years ago. As a young man, I had a great many ambitions. But there came a day when I died to all those things. And I said, henceforth, Lord Jesus, not my will, but thine. And from that day, from that day, God began to work in me and through me. That's the first pastoral note. We see that we only begin to live when we die. Here's the second pastoral note. We see that presenting our bodies, we see what presenting our bodies actually looks like. You're going to be fascinated by this. You really are. I hope you really are. In the rest of chapter 12, all the way through the 15th chapter, this idea of presenting our bodies to God as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. We hear that, and what immediately goes through our minds? 
I'm going to leave everything, pack my bags, go halfway around the world and be a missionary. If God is calling you to do that, please do that. Paul says nothing about that. I'm going to sell my home, give away everything to the poor, go off and live as a hermit somewhere down there in the trees or in Dinosaur Valley State Park or something and have some exceptional spiritual experience and encounter with God. He doesn't send us down that road either. You know, as you read the rest of these chapters, you know what's going to strike you? It's kind of mundane. He's just talking about how you get on with other people. How you relate to the U.S. government. Well, I can't wait for that one, 13th chapter. I have notes already about this high. He's going to get into the 14th chapter. You know, what happens when you disagree over Halloween? Kids go out, don't go out, give out candy, don't give out candy. He's going to deal with the most mundane, silly issues. But as far as Paul is concerned, when we get these things right, we are what? Presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. Because in all of these things, the everyday stuff of life, we simply die to self. It's no longer what I want. What does God want me to watch on the television? What does God want me to spend my money on? How does God want me to approach my marriage? What does God want me to do with my children? What, how does God want me to deal with that person that really just rubs me the wrong way every chance he gets? What does God want me to do when, me, you know, that person, we just disagree over something. And I know it's not fundamental. I know it's not an essential but I sure do get my back up over this, and so does he, and now we're going our own. How does God just want me to get through the day? Dying to self when it comes to dealing 101 different life situations. Oh, it's going to strike you as really strange because, again, we hear that language, oh, lay it all on the altar, and we immediately think what? Big, and then we immediately do what? Set ourselves up for disappointment. Why? Because I'm not doing that. That's not what Paul calls us to do here. He's simply calling us to live in the reality of the mercies of God and apply them 24-7 to those situations, contexts, and callings where God has put you, not tomorrow, right now, today. What does the mercy of God look like in this situation? How does it apply to this context, these circumstances? Oh, the third pastoral note is this. We see the connection between presenting our bodies and Paul's first statement back in chapter 11, verse 36. What is the first statement there? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And so what is Paul celebrating? He is celebrating the fact that God created all things. All things are from him. He's celebrating the fact that God controls all things. All things are through him. And he is celebrating, reveling in the truth that what? God defines all things. All things are to him. There is your biblical Christian worldview right there packed into that very simple statement. That's it. That's all there is to it. Paul has established for us that God is the basis of all reality. That's what he's saying there. It's quite marvelous. It's just incredible, really. 
that God himself, the triune God, is the basis for all reality. Well, if God is the basis for all reality by which I define everything, the therefore moment is what? He is obviously the basis of my life, my reality, how I view things, how I perceive things, how I value things. He becomes the, pa- the basis, the starting point through which, by which I define everything. Far too many of us, our lives are compartmentalized, right? You know what I mean by that, right? There are certain parts of our lives we think belong to God. And we think God is interested in this. Well, here's what I'm doing in in relation to that. What we don't understand is this. No, God is interested in everything and has a claim to everything. And everything must be defined by this ultimate reality. How does it relate back to him? Here's the fourth pastoral note. We see the connection between presenting our bodies and Paul's second statement there in verse 36. To him be glory forever. That statement builds on that last phrase In verse 36, the first statement, to him are all things, to him be glory forever. His glory is the supreme and final definition of all things, absolutely everything that happens. Here is a paradigm shifting truth, paradigm shifting. It's going to require just a little explanation, okay? Christ did not come into this world for us. What? Christ did not come into this world for us. Now, what are, you, what are you saying? Christ came into the world to save sinners. Yes, it's a means to an end. It is not the end. Christ did not come into this world for us. We came into this world for Christ. Do we get that? See, when we think Christ came into the world for us, do you know what we do? He's immediately subject, therefore, to me. He's not subject to anything. He did not come into this world for us. We're brought into this world for him, his glory. Therefore, every facet of our being, every compartment, and we've compartmentalized our lives, every compartment of our lives must be brought under this great overarching, paradigm-shifting definition of life. Does this glorify him? To him be glory forever. That's what Paul's going to put into application in the 12th chapter. He's going to show us how to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices, and he's going to show us then what it means to glorify God in all things in all circumstances. The fifth piece quickly is this, which is your spiritual Worship. It's the only tricky part of the verse. It's tricky. Why? Because two Greek terms can be translated by two different English terms. And so in the ESV, it speaks of spiritual worship. That first word spiritual can also be translated reasonable. That second word worship can also be translated service. The second, no biggie there, worship, service, they're essentially the same thing in Scripture. The first, a little more complicated, spiritual or reasonable. The word in the Greek is actually the term from which we get our word today, logic, logical. Isn't that interesting? I'm inclined to think that Paul does not mean to say spiritual worship, 
What he means to say is reasonable, logical worship. I'm driven that way by what follows in the second verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is what he seems to have in view. And so he's not simply saying, look, as we respond to the mercies of God, and we do this every day, and we'll do this until God calls us home, until glory. As we respond to the mercies of God and present our bodies in their totality as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, I want you to understand that this is, well, it's just simply your reasonable worship. It is your logical worship. It is logical, firstly, when you just stop and consider who God is. It is logically, secondly, when you stop and consider what God has done for you, what God is doing in and for you, and what God will yet do for you. You see, when I get the first 11 chapters, and I really get the intricacies of the gospel and the mercies of God as so clearly revealed in the gospel, there is a therefore moment, the only reasonable, the only logical response is for me to present all of me as a living, acceptable, holy sacrifice to living God. Here's the pastoral note. And let me give it to you by way of a question. Here it is. Are you thinking clearly? Are you thinking clearly? Do you really think clearly? Understanding the mercies of God and therefore understanding in the light of that glory in the light of who God is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will yet do, that the only rational, reasonable response on my part is to give him everything. Present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. One preacher explained it as follows. Once you have a good view of God's mercy... Anything less than a total sacrifice of yourself to God is completely irrational. Are you, am I thinking clearly? We're going to express it so well in a few moments in that well-known hymn. Here's a stanza from it as we conclude. Were the whole realm of nature mine, That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Our Father, we make that our simple prayer, simple request this day. That as we wrestle with your word, as we saturate ourselves in your mercy as revealed in your gospel, And as we consider what you now call us to in the Lord Jesus, we do pray that we would be reasonable. And by your spirit, you would give us spiritual eyes to see and help us to act accordingly. And that we would truly understand that the only life worth living is a life wholly dedicated, consecrated to you. In the name of Christ, we do ask it. Amen.